We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Okay, we're continuing our series here in 1 Timothy. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 3. We'll be at the end there, verses 14 through 16. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Uh, as you're turning there, it's probably no surprise to some of you that I work fly fishing into this sermon somehow. So uh, bear with me. Uh, recently, though, I was able to spend some time in Denver back in November. And thanks for laughing. And uh, I was there for a conference with a bunch of Bible and theology nerds. And as much as I love being with those nerds, uh, I couldn't let a day pass by without uh, getting away to the lower Rockies and trying to get after one of the prize fish. And it's a native Colorado cutthroat trout. And so about a month or so out, I started reaching out to friends and gathering some intel and how to be successful to land one of those cutthroat. So when we get there in November, the first day, I pack up and all my friends think I'm crazy to drive two hours southwest of Denver for fishing. But when I get to the parking lot, so I, I end up going to Cheeseman Canyon, okay? And by the way, if you ever want to go to Cheeseman Canyon, just be aware that from the parking lot to the canyon, it's an hour and a half walk. So just be prepared to walk for three hours going up and down mountains. Anyway, as I arrived, I rigged up, got my dry drop rig going, and started fishing. And uh, to no surprise to Kristen, I wasn't having a lot of success. So I was racking my brain like, okay, I know the water flow, I know what the hatch is, I, what's going on? So all I did was I moved six feet downstream and I was repositioned to where I could see the water more clearly. And what I found out was that the riverbed had a quick sort of up bit to it to where I didn't know six feet beforehand. And so afterwards, I repositioned, got my dry drop, got it on the nice natural drift and put it right in front of the fish's face and was successful. So all it took was a little bit of repositioning, a, a more clear view of how to be successful because earlier I couldn't see, I was blind. I thought I knew, but I didn't. But after that repositioning and having a more clear view, I was able to be successful. <laughs> having a correct or clear view on reality is necessary so that we can walk in a manner worthy of God. This is what Paul prays for the Colossian church there in chapter one, verses nine through 10. He says, I pray that you would grow in your knowledge of God so that you can walk in a manner worthy of him. Similarly, here Paul is doing the same thing. As we saw earlier in the book, there is, there is much false doctrine and teaching going on in Ephesus where Timothy is ministering, and a right understanding of the truth is needed to live faithfully. You could say that this letter is but a helpful tool to reposition Timothy in the Ephesian church so that they can have a correct view on the reality that God has provided for them in Christ Jesus. So, in our passage today, we'll see three points of repositioning. And, as I've been made fun of three times this week, they're all uh, alliterized. Christian conduct, Christian church, Christian confession. Christian conduct, Christian church, 
Christian confession. Let's hear from our Lord in his word in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Pray with me and we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are so grateful and thankful recipients of your word this morning that you have called us by your son as your church. Would you help us this morning to um, to, be, to have open ears and open minds and open hearts to, to receive these eternal truths that you have given for us. And would, you, would you plant them and staple them into our hearts so that we can live in an honorable way for you. Bless our time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. First, Paul's conduct and or, uh, Paul's purpose in writing this is Christian conduct. You see that there in verses 14 and the first part of 15. Paul says that he writes these things so that one would know how to behave in the household of God. Given the status of the city of Ephesus, Paul is so concerned for Timothy and the church that he writes to them ahead of time since he might be delayed as ancient travel would lend itself to. There is so much idolatry and simple practices and, and paganism around the, the church of Ephesus So Paul wanted to make sure that the Ephesian church received these instructions from God and that they knew how to act because, here's the key, because of their relationship to the truth, the mystery of godliness. We saw that uh, phrase again there in uh, chapter 3, verse 9, the mystery of faith. This is what we hold to. So these things that Paul refers to um, is what we've covered in our time already in in chapters 1 through 3. Um, false teaching, sin, salvation in Jesus, prayer, church order, church officers. And it also references what follows in chapters 4 through 6. Their conduct then is related to what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5. That the aim of his charge is love. A love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In some Timothy has given instructions on how church leaders and church members conduct themselves in both life and doctrine, belief and practice. That, so that one there that you see in verse 15, how one ought to behave, this is referring to both Timothy, the church leaders, and the rest of the members. This is for everyone. In other words, Paul is communicating a deeper reality than just mere moral instruction. He's communicating a holistic manner of life. A guiding disposition toward living. Now, I won't spend much time outlining the specifics of proper conduct since the previous passage, uh, 1 1 through 3, and then the ones coming out from 4 through 6, they deal with it more directly. But this passage here is signifying the deeper reality of why we should and can properly conduct ourselves in life and doctrine. This is so, as we'll more fully discover in verse 16. Because the truth by which we confess is a life-altering reality. It's life-changing. Theological reality is here prescribed in verse 16. 
they, sh- they prescribe a specific shape, a specific manner of living. It's not just happenstance. This, is, this has a specific reference. Remember Paul's testimony at the end of chapter 1. The life of the sinner is completely changed when the mercy of God in Christ overflows on him, freeing and enabling him to walk in the ways of God. Those members of the household of God have been transferred, as Paul said to Colossians, from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom they have redemption, which is what? The forgiveness of sins. I mean, talk about repositioning, right? There's a whole new reality that they're seeing. Further, not only was Paul writing out of concern for Timothy in the Ephesian church, in this immediate context, it's true, but we see the providence of God at work here. Since these instructions were written down, we know what would have otherwise not have been known. Namely, how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. So this, this should give us all the more reason and motivation to treasure our Bibles. Since it's here that we have God's instruction regarding doctrine, ethics, unity, and mission. And it's in clear print. So as mentioned by Pastor Patrick and Tyler, these, these instructions there in chapters 2 and 3 are not just sort of cultural adaptations. This is for, for the whole council or for, it's from the whole council of God for his whole church. Conduct yourselves properly in the household of God. Second, who is this Christian church? The Christian church is the household of the living God. So central here to Paul's instruction is not merely do's and don'ts. Right? It's there, but Rather, the instruction is a vital concern that the local church would live and act according to who they are. The household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Again, Paul is repositioning, he's reminding, he's making clear who they are. Because that determines how they are going to conduct themselves. Right, this idea that most of you probably know that how one acts action follows who one is or being so action follows being and as we as we saw last semester in our virtues class um, our thought our talk our actions should should always function in light of the covenant reality given and governed by the holy trinity indeed our status as the dwelling place of god is the it's the sphere it's the power and it's the end by which we train ourselves for godliness this is what Paul is going to say further in chapter 4, right? Training ourselves in life and doctrine holds promise for, for this life and the life to come because we have our hope set on the living God. So here in verse 15, we have three descriptors of what the Christian church is. Household of God, church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of truth. Let's look at these briefly. This household of God language might be familiar to, to some of you. It's used throughout the Old Testament, and it paves the way for the true household of God. When God was making his presence known in the Old Testament, it was often described in this house or household language. You remember Jacob's dream in Bethel in Genesis 28, or that the place of worship in Jerusalem and the desert was called the household of God, or when God rescued his, uh, his people from the house of slavery in Egypt, and place them into the house of God, the promised land. The temple, the tabernacle, Jacob's Bethel, were not places that simply contained the presence of God, right? As if there were boundaries on limitations on his presence. Rather, it was a special place 
that God had manifested his presence among his people to love and to bless them. It was also where the people worshipped, and where they encountered and fellowshiped with God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This was a special place. But now, now in the New Testament, something grand and marvelous has happened. The Word became flesh, and He has dwelt among us. What was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, God has revealed and fulfilled in Christ Jesus, true God and true man. God was manifested in the flesh for us and our salvation, as we confess in the Creed. The church, the new covenant people of God, was not built by human hands or human thoughts, but by God himself. As Jesus proclaimed himself to be the true temple of God, the church is now regarded as his body. Right? Jesus, that's what Jesus says, that's what Paul says, we are his body now. Therefore, by extension, the Holy Spirit dwells in us by faith, and therefore we are temples of the living God. This, so this, this spiritual reality is both staggering and comforting simultaneously. What grace it is that the Lord of life would build us up and make us his temples. The Lord of life, the one whose incomprehensible majesty now dwells with us and in us. And this, what else do we hold, hold fast to for the rest of our days? This is it. This is the gospel reality. Calvin says this, our Lord Jesus teaches us that we are his body, that we are each members of him and that he is our head so that we feed on his strength and substance. As partakers of him and his benefits, God has so united us with our Lord Jesus Christ that he will never, ever allow us to be parted or severed from him. We are his body. We are his house. Further, because we are caught up into this house of God as Christ's body through the Spirit, we are brothers and sisters by faith. This has profound implications on our relationships and conduct here at Emmaus, right? Since we have God dwelling with us, we don't act like the world around us. We look different. We conduct ourselves appropriately because we are the household of the living God. And because of that, we love one another with a pure heart, with a good conscience, with a sincere faith. So that what, what Paul describes in Colossians 3 is kind of summarizing what, what I'm saying here, right? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where you're heading with God in Christ. As, as that's your status, as that's who you are, Put off the old way, put on the new way. And that's going to look like forgiving one another. That's going to look like bearing one another's burdens. Because the peace of Christ is going to rule over all. Paul's next scripture is that we are the church of the living God. Professor Bray says, When the sending of the Spirit, or with the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, God's presence was no longer manifested in a building made with stones but now in the hearts and minds of believers. They were the living stones that were being built up into a new temple, which now is appropriately called the Church of the Living God. This descriptor is in stark contrast to the lifeless idols of Israel's day and the pagan Greco-Roman deities of Timothy's day, especially Diana or Artemis there in Ephesus, whose temple was considered one of the great wonders of the world. People would come all over the world for it. So Paul, again, is reminding, he's repositioning, he's making clear to the Ephesians that they are the one true temple because they are from the one true living God. This God does not dwell in temples made by man, but now lives among them, where we gather in spirit and truth 
in word and sacrament. And this living God has particular emphasis for Paul. Remember in Romans 11 at the end, he sort of just bursts into worship, right? He says, oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is your God, Christian. This is who you belong to. This is whose church you are. And this God is most truly alive. Most truly alive. Meaning, he's not, need of any, he's not in need of anything from creation. And that all of creation finds all of its need in the living God. This is your God. And as a reminder, this is why we begin our services with a biblical call to worship. Because the living God is calling us to himself in word and sacrament because he dwells among us. So let me encourage you to get here a little bit earlier and receive this call to worship by your living God. Our assembly on the Lord's Day isn't merely some hollow religious activity. We are drawn in and caught up into the presence of the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. At his table, we meet him. We make himself known, he makes himself known to us through the breaking of the bread. And in our fellowship, we love one another because he first loved us. This is your living God. Paul's final descriptor is that the church of the living God is the pillar and buttress or support of the truth. Now, this phrase has been of some debate between Protestants and Roman Catholics, but we need not spend much time reversing that debate since we just read how God is the one who builds his church, who makes his church through Jesus Christ, he sustains it, and the scriptures testify to this. Or, you can just pick up one of Pastor Matthew's books and see how God's word, truth, and promise creates a church. Nevertheless, Paul's descriptors are important for us to clarify, to be repositioned. As noted many times already, the Ephesian church was surrounded by paganism and false teaching, and, and those, those practices were entering the church. So, Paul uses pillar and buttress here intentionally. In Timothy's day, a buttress or support was used to stabilize the building from shifting or, or changing. And the pillar was used to not only hold the roof firm, but also to cast it and hoist it high for all to see from a distance. So there you can probably connect uh, what Paul's doing here. The church has a double responsibility as the household of God to both defend the truth against the storms of false doctrine and to hold the truth up high so that it is proclaimed to the nations. We must hold the truth firm and hold it high because as wild and scandalous it is, the church is God's vehicle, his providential vehicle for evangelism, for discipleship, for missions, for defending the faith. The church, no matter how weak and frail we are, is the vital means for preserving and propagating the truth of the gospel. Paul's words to the Ephesians makes this clear. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. In some, the church does not determine the truth, but rather she declares and she displays the truth. 
The church is the pillar and buttress of truth because she has God and Christ as her Savior on whom the church rests and without whom she cannot exist. So, what, what exactly do we declare and display? Well, Paul tells us here, he says it's the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. This is our third point here, Christian confession. We confess the resurrected Savior. Again, Paul is repositioning, he's reminding, he's making clear not merely what we believe, but what gives us the power, what is the source to live godly. That first line in verse 16 is a firm rejection of a common chant there in Ephesus. Remember that Ephesus held the temple of Diana or Artemis. She, was a, she and her temple were a great wonder of the world. Well, if you remember back in our series in Acts, in chapter 19, there were some agitators there who had commonly chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See what Paul's doing here? Here is the height of Paul's confrontation and rejection of the false teaching that was entering the Ephesians church. This phrase, great indeed, also could be translated uh, beyond all question, is meant to convey the, the magnitude, the excellence, the non-negotiable veracity of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And this is the truth that the church upholds and proclaims because in God's kindness, he has revealed what was previously hidden. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, for we do not preach ourselves or anything else, but Christ Jesus, our Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. This God is simply beyond all greatness. Further, as this phrase, mystery of godliness, is, is fundamentally a confession of who God the Son incarnate is and what he has done on our behalf, it also carries ethical implications. Paul just said that the reason why he's writing ahead of his personal visit is so that all the members of the Christian church might know how to conduct themselves properly in the household of God. Our justification, our godliness, our piety, our obedience, our discipling, our sanctification, all of the Christian life from beginning throughout all eternity is rooted in God himself. Remember, Paul says in Colossians 1, 25, that the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You don't try to be good and earn God's presence in Christ. Christ is in you, and that is the motive force to, to live this godly life, right? This confession or this, this common separation or dichotomy between theology and practice, it's a false one. Don't take it. Don't believe it, Okay. They're one and the same. Because this, this mystery of godliness that we confess is the source and power that is work in you. So, since this fount of life has been revealed, since God has revealed what was previously hidden, Paul brings us to look further into this mystery of godliness in six phrases. But since we often forget and stray from this mystery of godliness, since we, right, when we stay upstream and not reposition ourselves, Paul wants to remind us and to show us a more clear view on who exactly we're united to and whose power is exactly at work within us. Because our temptation in the Christian life is to say one of two things. Either, woe is me, this, this life of the Christian is it's just too hard for me to handle. I'm, I'm weak, I'm like, woe is me, you know, that sort of thing. Or to say, you know what, I'm pretty good at this thing. 
I can be my own savior. I don't need the local church. I'm strong enough on my own. I know what's right. Now, obviously, probably would say those exact things in the same way. Those are the ways that they present themselves that we are tempted with to, um, to not hold up this mystery of godliness, to look at some other savior. Paul wants to remind us, he wants to take us back, as I do oftentimes with my two-year-old, to remind them, okay, here's what is true. Here is what is true. So let's look at our Savior. He was manifested in the flesh. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, was God and was with God in the beginning. Beyond all time, He is the eternal radiance and Word and wisdom of God. Yet, for us in our salvation, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And in this mysterious incarnation, God the Son, without loss or change in His complete perfection, now subsists in a truly divine and truly human nature. In the Word made flesh, God the Son incarnate is the second Adam, who reconciles those who were alienated from God through His perfect obedience, and He makes peace by the blood of His cross. Though Satan and his enemies and the assaults of hell try to deceive us, this is the article of faith that is the ground of our salvation. The Word made flesh is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Vindicated by the Spirit, your Savior Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God and the power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1. Taking sin and death's mightiest blow, Christ Jesus, uh, His sacrifice was so efficacious, so victorious, that death was dealt its death blow. Though the righteous one was put to death in the body, He was made alive by the Spirit, putting the rulers and authorities to open shame. And he does that by triumphing over them in him, in his resurrection. In this victorious resurrection from the dead, we are brought near to God, hidden in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Seen by angels, your Savior Jesus Christ was proclaimed to be the God, uh, the Son of God throughout heaven and earth. These angels were the first ones to tell the disciples of the resurrected Savior. So all of creation, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that the whole cosmic realm witnessed this matchless glory of the resurrected Son of God. All knew who was King. Proclaimed among the nations, your Savior Jesus Christ is made known to all peoples and nations. And he is made known through us, frail and weak sinners like you and me. And this is the job of the local church as a pillar to lift high and proclaim it to the nations without fail because the good news that the word made flesh for us and our salvation. Believed on in the world, your Savior Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of all peoples and nations. Through his victory over death, the second Adam has penetrated the strong man's house, rendering him powerless, and rescues men and women from his clutches. The word of God does not fail, brothers and sisters. Men and women all over the globe throughout all time are, are being rescued from the clutches of the strong man because the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. Take it up in glory. Your Savior Jesus Christ is currently at the right hand of God making intercession for you in his full array of glory and majesty and honor. From his heavenly throne he rules in justice and righteousness and from there he will return to judge the living and the dead where we will see him as he is shining bright like the sun. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us live in a manner worthy of the mystery to which we belong. Let us not be distracted by other affairs of this world seeking to tear us down. Let us not be deceived by the enemy seeking to destroy us. Let us not be blinded by our own strength that, that binds us to our former ways. 
Instead, let us be caught up in awe and wonder at our risen and ascended Savior, who took on flesh for us and our salvation. Let us hold fast to the truth amidst the assaults of hell and hoist it high for all to see that Jesus really is King. Let us conduct ourselves in godliness toward all since we belong to the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me leave you with some uh, pastoral charges here, three of them for, for you, Emmaus. First is to simply let your hearts and minds be filled with awe. Let your hearts wonder at how great your God is, the one who's shown in your hearts the light of life, to give us the, the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Simply behold, right? This is what Psalm 16 is, right, is, is about. So looking up to heaven and seeing how great a treasure we have in Christ Jesus. Third, conduct yourselves in godliness. Conduct yourselves in godliness as you defend and proclaim the mystery of Christ Jesus to whom you belong. Don't allow false doctrine to corrode the pillar and buttress. Put away arrogance, performance, bitterness, and self-conceit. These aren't just wrong acts. They're wrong acts because we're believing something untrue. We're not seeing clearly. We're not looking at what's true reality. As much as we think we are, we're not our own saviors. Instead, hoist high this mystery of godliness that Christ Jesus perfectly obeyed when you can't. Seek to cultivate and habituate these virtues of prudence and humility and fortitude and self-control and gentleness and the like. Do this with these brothers and sisters here, as messy it's going to be, because this is how it's meant to be. We are the temples of the household of the living God. Finally, rest assured. Rest assured, because God dwells among you and you're his house. Whenever the devil tries to lull us to sleep, whenever we are tied to the world's vanities, whenever the burden of our flesh infects us with its evil cravings, remember that you are the household of God. You are bought by God, you are built by God, and you are sealed by God for your good and his glory. Remember, and rest assured, Christian. Pray with me. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we're, we're weak and needy sinners. But at the same time, according to your grace in Christ Jesus, who obeyed for us, who substituted his life for us, who rose victoriously over death, we are considered now the household of God, temple of the living God. Should we help us to, to really be a pillar and buttress of the truth, confessing this mystery of godliness and conducting ourselves appropriately according to this grace in Christ Jesus. And help us do this for and with one another. Let us seek to, to live in godliness and, uh, and holiness with one another. We're grateful for your word. Help us as we go from here. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.